This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. We're going to go forward in time from our last episode, nearly a millennium. Last time we talked about the Gnostics and the serious challenge that they presented at the early church. The dualism that lay at the heart of Gnosticism continued to rear its hoary head in the centuries that followed. It was part and parcel of the Zoroastrianism and the Manichaeanism that was rooted in Persia, and was the official faith of the Sassanid Empire. Dualistic ideas were so popular, they managed to infiltrate many Christian communities in both the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire. When Rome fell and Byzantium carried on in its place, the influence of dualism lingered. Church leaders were able to hold it at bay by using the work of earlier fathers who fought Gnosticism. But as those works fell out of use, dualism resurged. This dualism came in many forms, as we will see. But the basic idea was that the forces of light, good, and God are on one side, with the powers of darkness, evil, and the devil on the other. And if your response to that is, wait, isn't that what the Bible says? There's another important component that we need to insert. In dualism, the two sides are equal in relevance and power. They are co-eternal, and in fact, Going way back to the beginning, they were originally joined into a whole that somehow got split and led to the creation of the physical universe. And if all of this sounds vaguely like the plot for an upcoming superhero movie, it's all just coincidence. Or is it? The expression that most forms of dualism take is to make the immaterial spiritual realm the site of light, good, and God, while the physical realm of space and matter are the domain of darkness and corruption. So, as with the Gnostics, salvation in dualism gets hijacked from being redemption from the fall to an awareness of your innate inner goodness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Dualism appears to have experienced a resurgence in both the East and the West at about the same time in the 12th century, though the two streams probably weren't connected. They became so popular that a couple of crusades and the Inquisition were used to try to stop them. The first that we will deal with was called Bogomilism and arose in the region of Bulgaria. Bogomil is Slavonic for beloved of God. That was the name of the man who began the movement that's associated with him. He was a priest who lived in Bulgaria during the mid-10th century. Bogomil was influenced by a group known as the Paulicians and sometimes called the Paulicans. These were a moderately heretical group that was reconciled to the Roman Church in the 17th century and exists to this day as an affiliated group with Catholicism, though with their own rites. There's a debate about the origin of the title Paulician. They said that they took their name from the Apostle Paul, claiming that their ideas were derived from the famous Apostle. But others say they drew their name from Paul of Samosata, a third-century heretical bishop of Antioch. Since so many of the Paulician beliefs ride tandem to the errors of Paul of Samosata, it's safe to conclude that's really where they got their title. They flourished from the mid-7th to the mid-9th centuries in the region of Armenia. Armenia has the distinction of being the first officially Christian nation. About AD 300, King Tiridates III became a believer and turned his court into a Christian concern. 
During the 4th century, the Armenian church was under the influence of the ultra-Orthodox Cappadocian fathers. But then, after the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the Armenian church sided with the Egyptian Monophysites. Not long after the Orthodox faith was brought to Armenia, disciples of Paul of Samosata arrived and began spreading his adoptionistic ideas. Adoptionism was the belief that Jesus wasn't the eternal Son of God. Adoptionists said that God adopted a man named Jesus at his baptism to become the Messiah. He was a kind of first-round draft pick. Armenia's location next to Persia saw some of the dualistic ideas of Manichaeanism infiltrate the church there. But 300 years would go by before the Paulicians would emerge as an identifiable group. And when they did, the Byzantine emperors alternately ignored and then persecuted them. When Theodora became empress, she had the Paulicians forcibly relocated to Thrace in the mid-9th century, hoping they'd act as a bulwark against the hostile Bulgars. That's where they came into contact with the group that would later be called the Bogomils. The Bulgars were a Turkish people recently Christianized by missionaries. Their ruler, Boris, asked the Franks to send more missionaries to help his people with their new faith. He didn't appeal to the much closer Constantinople because he was already wary of their influence and authority. But that was not about to stop the Byzantines from asserting their control over a region they deemed as within the sphere of their hegemony. Constantinople not only sent missionaries to Bulgaria, they sent an army. Boris had to capitulate and was baptized in the Eastern Orthodox faith, taking the new name of Tsar Peter. Byzantium then had a whole slew of weak and pretty much worthless emperors. They suffered a huge defeat at the hands of Muslim forces at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. But then, a decade later, relief arrived in the form of a new and vital leader, Alexius I Comnemnus. Comnemnus was more than a talented and decisive ruler. He was also an astute lay theologian. He formed the Paulicians in his hinterlands into an allied force and then led them in a campaign against the Normans who'd been seizing territory in the West. But as they entered battle, the Paulicians proved false and deserted the Byzantine forces. Comnemnus's remaining army managed to pull off a victory. And so when the emperor returned to Constantinople, he imprisoned the Paulician leaders. The remaining Paulician population, bereft of leadership, became an easy target for round two of Comemnus' strategy in dealing with them. He sent in Orthodox missionaries and priests who evangelized them into Orthodoxy. The imprisoned Paulician leaders were also evangelized by Orthodox apologists, with many of the Paulician leaders converting. Even the emperor engaged in this proselytizing work over the Paulician leaders. But their two chief leaders... Cusinus and Fulus remained firm in their devotion to their heretical tenets and so were kept in prison in comfortable accommodations until they died. It was this phase of Polish history that saw the movement shed its more aberrant ideas in favor of an orthodoxy that allowed them later to become affiliated with Roman Catholicism. That it chose to merge with that branch of the faith rather than the nearer Greek orthodoxy of Byzantium stands as a reminder of the tension and animosity between the Paulicians and the Eastern Church. And that leads us to another heretical movement, the Bogomils. In the last two years of his reign, Emperor Alexius Comnenus 
was made aware of another religious movement that had sprung up in the western reaches of his realm, but had grabbed disciples right there in the capital of Constantinople. By the time he was made aware of it, it had already established an underground church with its own bishop. Alexius pretended to be interested in this new movement and invited the bishop, named Basil, to the palace to share what this new movement called Bogomilism believed. Scribes were hidden behind drapes and recorded every word. As Basil listed off Bogomilian doctrine, he supposed that he was speaking to a theologically uninformed civil ruler. He didn't realize that he was ticking off heretical ideas to an astute theologian who was mentally dismantling each and every idea. So when Basil was done, well, it was Alexius' turn, and he proceeded to list Basil's erroneous doctrines and called on the bishop to renounce them. Basil refused, and so was imprisoned. Alexius then visited Basil in his cell several times in the following weeks, reasoning with him, urging him to be converted to an Orthodox faith. Basil refused and was condemned to be burnt at the stake for heresy. While such executions would become common in the West, they were a rather rare occurrence in the Eastern Empire. Sorting out the beliefs of Bogomilism is a challenge because, well, it was a faith in flux that evolved over time. But from Alexius's diligent secretaries, here's what their bishop Basil said they believed. And get ready because it's a kind of wild ride. Bogomils said that a singular supreme god who was utterly spiritual had two sons. The elder was Satnel, while the younger was Jesus. The elder son rebelled and was banished from heaven. In exile, he created the material world and humanity. But he was unable to give that first man, Adam, life and ask God for help. Actually, he tricked God into it, saying that the man would be a diligent servant to God. So God complied. The man became a living being. But the man had a divided identity. Having a spirit, his potential was to be a servant of God. But possessing a body... He, in fact, became a servant and ally of Santanel. After fashioning Adam, Bogomil said that Santanel created Eve, had sexual relations with her, the product of said union being Cain. Then, tempted by Eve, Adam begat Abel. Later in history, the human race produced a person who pleaded with God to save them. God answered by sending his son, the Logos, who entered a virgin's ear, took flesh from her, and emerged with a body from the same area. Although how he did that is difficult to fathom. The son, known as Jesus, grew to maturity, only appearing to die, then descended into hell, where he defeated and bound Satanel, revoking his suffix L and turning him into the more familiar Satan. And this is where it gets really confusing in case you aren't already. Even though the son took flesh from somewhere inside Mary's head, he didn't really have a body. He only appeared to, which for those of you who are keeping track, is the ancient heresy known as docetism. Hey, seriously, if you said that to yourself before I did, give yourself a pat on the back and go buy yourself your favorite hot or cold drink. Here we see the inevitable internal contradiction that comes from dualism. How can Sotnel whoever and always remained a spirit, be evil when Jesus, the son who took on a body, be the holy one who affects our salvation. 
Well, the Bogomilian would reply, Jesus didn't really have a body, he only seemed to. Okay, even if we give them that, we're still faced with the fact that the Holy One, the Good Son, then play-acted at having something that was corrupt and evil, while the evil one, the bad son, remained a pure spirit. Listen, if my 15-year-old son tells me that he wants to be a missionary and gives every indication that he has a solid and mature walk with God, but one day I find him sitting on the couch in the living room reading a pornographic magazine, we're going to have a chat. But let's say that once I sit down and start in on him, he smiles and he turns the magazine toward me to reveal that it's nothing more than the cover. I'm going to be immensely relieved. But the question remains, why would he even have the cover? What's going on in him that would move him to the appearance of evil? Which, of course, God's word waves his people off from. The dualism of docetism and its later manifestation in Bogomilism fails epically right there. How could Jesus, as the Son and Word of God, even appear to have a body if a body was unalterably corrupt and evil? Well, Jesus prevailed over Satan, whose realm of authority and power was then confined to earth, which, of course, according to the usual dualistic machinations, was a realm of evil because it's made of matter. But on that evil earth dwell those dualistic creatures called human beings, who have both a body and a spirit. So God sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his faithful ones, also known as the Bogomils. The Bogomilian end of the age uh, conceives of the Holy Spirit ascending back to heaven, and together with Jesus the Word, both are reabsorbed into the Father, the one true God. Bogomilism rejects such orthodox doctrines as the Trinity, Uh, It, of course, regards the cross as repugnant and has nothing to do with either baptism or communion, since such things require contact with physical matter. But Bogomilians often lived highly disciplined lives of an apparently laudable morality that proved attractive to Orthodox believers who weren't so impressed with the casual indifference of some Orthodox leaders. The same thing happens today. Some of the cults show a fastidious diligence in pursuing the rigors of their faith in the mistaken hope of earning points with God and maybe getting into heaven. That religiosity can appear attractive to nominal believers who are used to seeing professing Christians failing to follow through on a consistent lifestyle of devotion to Christ. So, converts were made from the ranks of the Orthodox into the Bogomilian camp not out of doctrinal persuasion so much as by the practical theology of daily life. Like the Gnostics before them, Bogomilians divided their followers into the ordinary, everyday believers and a few of the choice elect. These elect had to face special trials and challenges. If they proved their worthiness, they were given a secret and complex initiation that uttered them into the exalted ranks of the Bogomilian elite. They were then regarded as being equal to such lofty figures as the Virgin Mary, and each were even called the Theotokos, Mothers of God. They only prayed one rote prayer, the Our Father, which they repeated several times a day. After the conquest by Western armies of Constantinople in 1204, the Byzantine government's check on the spread of Bogomilism was nearly shattered. The movement grew until the Balkans, where they were centered, was eventually conquered by the Turks in the 15th century. 
Like the Monophysites some eight centuries before them, the Bogomils ended up being highly receptive to conversion to Islam when it took hold of their homeland. As we wrap up this episode, let's consider how and why Bogomilism presented such a challenge to orthodoxy. First, probably most telling for the average Christian was the fact that Bogomilians practiced their faith more zealously than many of the Orthodox. Second, while Christianity seemed to struggle and to some even stumble when it came to answering the age-old dilemma of the origin of evil, Bogomilism seemed to provide an answer. Third, because too few Christians were equipped to dispatch the ideas of the Bogomils, the authorities ended up resorting to force, turning what had been a church of the martyrs into the martyr makers. Those three points are going to shape our next episode because they prove to be compelling issues in our examination of heresy and heretics. (laughs) 